Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, thanks for joining us again this week. Now, New York Magazine had an interesting cover story in a recent issue that has since generated a lot of buzz. And there's no wonder, because it was titled, A Practical Guide to Modern Polyamory, How to Open Things Up for the Curious Couple. Now, a team of writers led by Allison P. Davis put together a pretty lengthy how-to on all things polyamory in this kind of like uh, creative Q&A format, tackling questions like, how do I broach this with my partner? Um, Should we tell our kids? And I love this one. What can go wrong? (laughs) Now, many of our listeners might have a different first question to ask, which would be, what is polyamory? So Jim, can you start off by defining that term? And then, I don't know, there might even be other terms that would be helpful for this conversation. So just give us a dictionary (laughs) lesson first. Yeah, this is this is really all in the news. I was I was I read you know the, the New York Magazine piece and and that started this conversation. I think for you and I to potentially do this and and then I was reading in USA Today and other places. The USA Today basically just said, look, open relationships are just having a moment. Uh, polyamory, um, ethical non-monogamy, similar terms are just becoming a bigger part of our cultural lexicon. It's just how we talk about life. And so we don't blush about it anymore. Instead, we just give how-to guides. Uh, the most common type of open relationship has the moniker of being um, of swinging. Uh, and that's also kind of having a moment as well. The hashtag swing talk uh, uh, has more than two and a half billion views, billion on TikTok. And it's often marked by a symbol of an upside down pineapple. Uh, in essence, swinging is when you are in a relationship with someone, but you purposefully and you uh, you purposefully seek out and engage others for casual, non-committal sex. If a married couple, for example, you hook up with another married couple and you exchange partners for sex. One study from the North American Swing Club, and since it's from the North American Swing Club, uh, you may want to hold this with a grain of salt, but it found that 15% of all U.S. couples have tried it at least once in their married lives. Um, but I do think that you have a percentage, whether it's 15 or not, that would sh- stun many people. And it's climbing. It, it is climbing rapidly. So monogamy, some terms. Monogamy is when you're in a committed relationship with someone. One husband, one wife. Polygamy is when you are in a committed relationship with more than one person, say one husband and three wives. Polyamory uh, or consensual non-monogamy is when you have multiple intimate relationships, whether sexual or romantic, with the full knowledge and consent of all parties involved. You and I were talking offline and Basically, this is um, respectable adultery, the attempt at respectable, accepted um, part of your life, what would have been called adultery. Mm -hmm. 
Now, this topic of conversation, quite honestly, seems inevitable in light of our current cultural context, but non-monogamous relationships are not new. But what do you think it is behind, I don't know, our current cultural context that is kind of making this, as you said, have another moment? It's interesting. I think that both Christians and non-Christians are, are very alike on what's causing this. And, and, and uh, there's a common cultural assessment. I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal which and all the, a lot of the stuff that we're highlighting will be in the show notes, um, but it was talking about the sexual marketplace used to be very strictly, you know, regulated, and now it's just become mostly just free, kind of a free for all, and that's been something that's been with us and has been building for decades. Some would say it's actually started in the 1920s, uh, and then really took full open form in the 1960s, but um, and now it's just gone mainstream, uh, very mainstream. Uh, but there was a there was a reporter in uh, that was talking about this in the in the journal piece, just how the, the hookup culture in the West has just become normative among adolescents and young adults, whether one generation like Z does it more or less than millennials. It, you know, it's nobody's looking down on it. It's just a normal thing. You you just hook up and the sexual culture. Uh, just sees people as these freewheeling individuals looking out for number one, just kind of all for a good time. And sexual taboos are removed and we're all liberated and capable of making these entirely free choices about our sexual lives, sampling from this menu of options uh, that are just newly made available by um, the sexual revolution. And so but you really do see this, uh, what I would say, this this developing. I, I've, you know, when I talk about Generation Z in in my book on Generation Z, and when I speak on this and things, you know, one of the marks of Generation Z is sexual fluidity, which means that they don't want to be defined by any one type of sexual category, which is why you have such a huge number of Gen Z, up to thirty percent, that say they're LGBTQ. Now, the vast majority of those say they're bisexual, but really what they're saying when you drill down is, I don't want to say I'm simply heterosexual because that limits me. I'm still, I just don't ever, I don't want to be labeled. So let me just say I'm a little bit of everything. I'm open to everything. I'm bisexual, um, even though they may never have had a, a homoerotic experience in their life. It's just kind of the thing to say. It's just kind of like you want to say the politically correct thing about your own life. Um, and so, so that, but that sexual fluidity really, you know, was birthed in the lives of their parents and grandparents going all the way back to the 1960s and the sexual liberation that we often talk about. And this is just the first generation that has been birthed fully embracing what has been called the sexual liberation. Mm. Well, and you have to put this side by side too with just the denigrating view of the sanctity of marriage. In fact, when, when I was reading kind of a lot of the same articles that you were and reading testimony after testimony of people who are in these kind of relationships, I couldn't help but wonder, like, why get married at all? Like, why not just be a hookup kind of situation? Why even bother with the married part of it? And uh, which was why I found it interesting when I was reading um, an article from, I think it was Time about non-monogamy. And um, they interviewed the chief science advisor from, for Match, it was Helen Fisher. And she's also an anthropologist. And she's, she, she kind of had the same question that I did. She put it a little bit differently, but she said, there's every reason to think that having sex outside of the pair bond has been quite common for millions of years. What's actually extraordinary is that we bother to pair up at all, and indeed we do. So what do you make of it? Well, I think, I think adultery in whatever form 
it goes back to, you know, the beginning of sin in the world. I mean, so from an anthropological standpoint that there's always been people who have violated covenant relationships of marriage of some kind culturally is not news. So from an anthropological standpoint, from a social social standpoint, I mean, she's, she's absolutely right. Um, but what I, I, I will say, though, that equal to that, parallel to that, just as ancient, more ancient, I would argue because it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, is marriage as being uh, what is to be the norm. Uh, and so I think that if you were to say that, you know, sex outside of a committal relationship has always been with us as if that mainstreams it. No, 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 no. What predates even that and has gone all along is the sense that there should be a commitment. There should be a lifelong commitment that crosses all culturals, all cultures and times and eras and histories and goes all the way back in human civilization for millennia. And of course, from the Christian perspective, it's detailed in the oldest of texts, uh, including the Hebrew Bible. So that's not new. And let's make sure we know exactly what it is that is not new, that this is really bumping heads against. Now, I've read people describe marriage as akin to an arbitrary certificate, uh, teaming up for shared assets, or, or, or that it's archaic to presume that marriage is a necessity for a long-term relationship. And they point to famous celebrity couples that have never married, like Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell or something like that. Um, but that's actually new, that, that kind of approach, that kind of mentality toward marriage. Uh, but it's suddenly permeated everything as if, you know, as if we've been liberated. But actually, we haven't been liberated. We, we're actually going back to something that that um, which which I would say is potentially very damning and damaging and bonding. But uh, th there was a there was a study by the Thriving Center of Psychology that, that did a survey of, of, of Gen Z and millennial people and about relationships. And and um, and all of them, they were unmarried. And, and they were asking them how they felt about marriage. And they found that two out of every five believe marriage is about 40% to be a very outdated tradition. And that younger generations also don't regard marriage as foundational to their lives like older generations did. Uh, 85%, 85% believed uh, that marriage is not necessary whatsoever to have a fulfilling and committed relationship. So it's just, it's just like a man-made construct of some kind. But um, but th this will this will really prove ruinous, as I mentioned. Uh, the if I think anyone who who has really, and I don't mean to sound condescending, but I, I just anyone, anyone who studied history and 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 culture knows that marriage is not simply a social construct. Obviously, it's rooted in in all the faith traditions, and from the Christian perspective, it's rooted in creation itself. So it's not a man made construct, and and we can probably get into that more later, but regardless of where you stand from a faith perspective, the, the removal of marriage and commitment and bonds and things like that has historically, whenever that has not been lifted high by society, it is absolutely ruinous for women and devastating for children because it removes that protective bond and commitment um, that, uh, that marriage brings. And that could be a podcast in and of itself about how marriage is actually historically and culturally protective to women and very protective of children. Um, so we just need to be careful that we're not too flippant about it. And, um, you know, in the name of the sexual revolution, this is ironic, you may lose a lot of the gains of the protection of women and what feminism has been about. Yeah. As you mentioned earlier, there certainly is this underlying sexual ethic at play in which culture is saying that 
you should be able to express your personal sexuality. And it seems like, like in a way that's natural to you. And so it's interesting because what we're actually saying is that there are no more than sinful sexual desires. In fact, they're not simply desires at all. They're a part of your identity. And so what happens is when we do that is we remove any type of guilt or shame associated with what would have been, as you put, consider it a sinful act, you know, the act of adultery. So in the case of adultery, you've always had people who have desired to have sex with someone other than their partner. But now instead of feeling bad about it or feeling any sense of guilt, they can just say, well, that's who I am. I'm a polyamorist. Like, yep. am I far? I mean, is we're, that where we're, we're headed? We're, and, and again, uh, and I want to, to, because I mean, these are, these are hot button issues, but what you just described, where have we heard that argument in thinking before? Obviously, with the whole LGBTQ movement, mm-hmm. I mean, this is who I am. Therefore, I need to be affirmed for my actions. In other words, I am gay. Therefore, I have license, affirmation, and permission to pursue a homoerotic lifestyle. There's a sense of this is who I am, mm-hmm. and 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 you know, it's interesting that and you know, people in the LGBTQ community get very um, defensive when this is raised because they know it is a slippery slope. Because if you say, I do what I do because I am who I am, I do what I do and I, and I should be affirmed for doing it because I feel what I feel. I have this attraction. Um, and this is where they get very, very nervous because, well, so why is a line drawn then against pedophilia? Why is a line drawn against necrophilia? Why is a line drawn against bestiality? Why is a line drawn against other things where someone would could say those are my sexual desires? Um, and they say, well, no, 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 no. We're not saying that. Well, it's your argument. It's mm-hmm. your philosophy. You're, you're, you would be artificially saying it applies here, but it doesn't apply there. You can't have a philosophy of truth. You can't have a philosophy of sexual morality or ethic and kind of pick and choose where you want to apply it. Either it's an ethic that's transcendent or it's not. Um, otherwise, you're just making all this up. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that um, the 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 um, this is radical individualism at work. Something that we've talked about before. This increasingly just becoming our our theology of culture. Uh, the ultimate ethic is my own personal sense of desire. And that there's nothing transcendent. There's nothing outside of myself to contend with. It's all personally or socially constructed. So yes, when that's the case, who I am. Uh, is all that matters and therefore what I want. We are our own God. We are driven by our own sense of self and self-fulfillment. But the danger of that is that built into that ethic, there is no boundary. It, it, it has no limit of application. And it's, 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 it's nightmarish to think of, of what it could lead to. And, but again, and, and, and I've said this before, and I'm not the first, the things that are right now mainstream, 20, 30, 40 years ago would have horrified the 99.9% of everyone, Christian, non-Christian, everyone. And now it's it's mainstream because this ethic doesn't have any boundaries. And so it keeps moving the needle further and further and further and further. And, and because there is no basis to say no without saying no to what you've already said yes to, and so even those within the LGBTQ community, and I'm going a little afield here, but I think this is an important, you know, you know, to, to reflect on this, 
even within the LGBTQ community, um, many people who are gay have a lot of problem with the trans dynamic that's been attached to it because they don't like how their argument for themselves was being seized and then applied to all things trans in a way that kind of exceeded what they were comfortable with or what they felt like they were trying to say. And it's very similar to how the African-American community felt like, hey, you're taking in the name of LG, you know, gay rights what was for us you know, about Jim Crow laws. And it's not the same. And they were offended when that was taken because you know, this is not about sexual preference. This was about race. And so it's interesting how when you just chart this culturally, how it just it just has no boundaries and it has no end. And, and so it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse in terms of application or, la- you know, lack of a, of a real true ethic. Mm-hmm. Well, and I feel like a sub argument often um, posed alongside that is, well, we're not hurting anybody. Like, I think that's what what it is with this is like, well, if, if it's fine with me and it's fine with my partner, then, you know, what's wrong with it? Why, why does anybody else need to get involved? You've already mentioned several points about, well, you know, it can be really harmful and damaging to women and to children. In fact, if we go back to that New York Times art, or the New York article, the final question, as, as I mentioned earlier, broached was what could go wrong? <laughs> I feel like, oh, go ahead. Yeah, well, let me, and, and, and let me go back to what you just raised. It, to me, it is it is a very truncated understanding uh, to simply say, even if you were to buy into, it doesn't, I'm just doing this for myself. I'm not hurting anybody. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously that's not true with pedophilia. Mm-hmm. Obviously there's, there is a, there's a boundary there because you've got people who are non-consensual. And, and of course, what is the argument now among pedophiles is that no, an eight-year-old can be consensual, which is horrific, but sadly mark my words that that's the next boundary to come down that somehow children can be consensual and therefore this will be allowed but but let me go back further even if you were to say so i'm I'm not hurting anybody else Mm -hmm. that's a very individualistic mindset because you're not asking well how am i hurting others in other ways like how am i coursing and hurting society how am i introducing ways of living that are affecting a wider sense of of, of uh, cultural values and the cultural fabric. And what am I doing to undermine the institution of marriage and the institution of family and how that affects marriage and, and children? So it's not, and women and children. So it's not just, you can't just make this, I'm not hurting anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because it, you know this is a poor analogy, but it's like, you can say, well, I'm just driving in my car. I'm not hurting anybody if I'm alone on a road and I go 70 miles an hour instead of 50. Mm-hmm. Okay, but can we talk about carbon emissions? Can we talk about wear and tear on the road? Can we talk about the possibility of killing a deer? Can we talk about you know pollution? Can we, can we what I mean? There's it, it's it's such a a reduced understanding of what our lives matter and how choices matter. But anyway, to your point, mm-hmm. <laughs> really chase that with it. The biggest concerns that polyamorists themselves stated in that article, which I thought was morbidly fascinating was like, well, like when they literally said, well, what can go wrong? <laughs> and they listed themselves, you know, what could potentially go wrong, you know? And um, like one was that uh, the hierarchy might shift, that one partner might have more power over another due to these extramarital relationships. In other words, the extramarital partner becomes 
equal or more important than who you were originally married with. Uh, you, you might become a third wheel. Um, you might tire of your secondary status. Your partner might want to actually not just be hooking up, but to date someone uh, who wants you out of the picture. You know, uh, they might leave you behind. The two of you might drift apart. Uh, it might break your relationship because it's not mature enough for it. Um, which leads to the most shocking concern. What they said, okay, here's the one, though, that really worries us, plagues us. To, here's what could go most wrong of all. And this was appalling to me, that this was what they most feared. What they most feared was that their partner might, at the end, want to be monogamous. <laughs> that was their worst fear. That was what, that's what could most go wrong. What could most, you know, you, you, you don't want to have happen. And somebody actually had the entire open relationship uh, they would realize there's no relationship at all and that what is really needed is a closed relationship built on commitment and uh, sexual trust. And I remember reading that and, and saying, gee, you think? <laughs> you know? But also that that was the fear. Oh, my goodness. Now, I, you know, let's be clear, because, I, you know, I don't think that this is 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 um, has been always you know, said clearly and taught clearly in the past. And, uh, you know, a lot of people feel like the Christian faith has a Victorian kind of attitude towards sex. And, and I think I remember something in Freud's writings. I to, and we will not have this in the show notes because I'm testing my memory. I, it was something that Freud mentioned where a Victorian woman um, uh, on her honeymoon night drugged herself into unconsciousness and left a note to her new husband, do to me as you must. It was that kind of view towards sex. And, you know, the opposite is true in terms of the Bible, which celebrates sex. And, 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 and that's a, it's a beautiful thing. I, I, I Philip Yancey, and I'm not going to quote him just right here on this, uh, but um, we'll, we'll try to get the, the, where it was in the, in the show notes. But um, uh, he, he, he had this section in one of his books um, where he, he, was talking about the intricacy of the anatomy mm-hmm. of the human body and God laboring over the physiology of sex and, you know, soft parts and moist parts and all these nerve cells and, and, and sensitive to pressure and pain yet capable of producing all this pre- uh, pleasure and, 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 and the amazing medical biological intricacies of like even erectile tissue and, and all of all of these kinds of the organs for secretion and reproduction and 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 the visual and 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 the, um um uh, all the the mechanical design of it all and 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 you know just 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 how much detail went into our creation in terms of making us sexual creatures and um, and what the Christian would say is is that. I mean, look at this. I mean, God's all pro-sex. He wanted us to be sexual creatures, but it's precisely because of the God-given sacred nature of sex that it's meant to be pursued and protected by the covenant of marriage. And that's what, you know, Paul meant. It wasn't like a Victorian view, but that's what that's what Paul meant when he said that there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. And it's as much spiritual journey as physical fact, and the two become one. And, and, and when he added further in 1 Corinthians on that um, uh, that whole whole note that we we shouldn't pursue the kind of sex that that avoids commitment and avoids intimacy, mm-hmm. leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. Um, so I'm not surprised that those in open relationships have concerns 
about secure relationship because an open relationship is anything but. And it really does undermine the entire lifestyle. The alternative, of course, which is the Christian one, is the joy of sex in the context of a secure relationship. Or as a writer of Proverbs puts it, um, you know, he was talking to the husband. He said, you know, enjoy your manhood, enjoy your sexuality and, and rejoice in the wife of your youth. And, you know, let her I mean, <laughs> I'm not trying to get too scripturally candid here, but it says, you know, it says things like let her charms and tender embrace satisfy you. Let her breasts satisfy you forever. Let her love alone fill you with delight. There's a sense of you are to pursue this this wonderful sexual relationship with this person in the context of commitment. And uh, so what I've often said, it, it, it just the way the best way I knew to describe it, have known to describe it, is that sex is like a fire. In the proper place and setting, like a, you know, a fireplace or something in your home, it's beautiful. Uh, but if it gets outside of, say, your fireplace, if it gets outside of where it belongs and where it was meant to be contained and harnessed and channeled and enjoyed, then the fire that warms become the fire that burns. Mm-hmm. And it can destroy a life in a marriage. Yeah. Let's pull this conversation in the direction of the church for a moment. You just kicked off a series on marriage at our church. And um, of course, sermons on marriage are not uncommon in a church, but how might the church need to update how it talks about marriage in light of this kind of new drift towards non-monogamy? I think you just need to own how culture has shifted on this. I I think you need to just begin with an, an understanding that the average person you're talking to does not have a view of marriage that is biblical. Um, that I, I think that what we've lost is the idea of holy matrimony. Um, and, you know, there are so many different things that have happened in our culture that have shifted this away. You know, the move to having your wedding from churches to like a barn, from those officiating at being ministers or pastors to those who just got some mail order credential as a friend who's doing it. Uh, vows that moved from till death to his part to here's to my dearest friend. And um, it's just a, it's just a new day where they have become very much less than sacred. It's become this social construct and um, something we define for ourselves, as we've talked about throughout this, uh, and, you know, just a legal matter or something like that. But holy matrimony, I, I, I just would say that we have to just begin by casting a vision for what really we're talking about as Christians, which is not marriage and certainly not civil unions. We're talking about holy matrimony. And, you know, when you look at what the Bible has to say about marriage, you know, there's four foundational things that it teaches. And you've heard me teach on this, really taking time to expand on it. But uh, the first is that, you know, teaching that marriage is the first and most foundational of all institutions. Uh, Second, that marriage best describes and depicts a supernatural union between Jesus and the church. I think a third major theology of marriage, if you will, is that marriage in the Bible is that marriage is the event that God has selected to consummate all of time. You find that in Revelation. And the final truth of marriage flows from those first three, which is that marriage is beheld in the highest honor as a result. Um, And so this really isn't about the larger cultural debate about who should be allowed to be married, which is what people want to get into, or... um, um, and it has little to do with like civil unions. This is about those who consider themselves Christ followers and where they should stand in relation to the biblical view of marriage and the idea of it being holy man, uh, holy matrimony. Um, and so that's why I, I, I get, I get, you know, testy 
um, how how even Christians have gotten so secular and, and individualistic about all of this, and they don't really view it this way. And, you know, you have the bride who just petulantly and petulantly and defiantly says, "This is my wedding." And then goes on to dictate every moment as if the act itself is all about personal self-fulfillment akin to a birthday party or a planned vacation. In truth, it is her wedding only in the sense that she is the one engaging it to enter into holy matrimony. It belongs to the church and belongs to Christ. Uh, it should be less about what she imagines and more about what she embraces. So have your wedding in a barn. I mean, it's, I'm not trying to make that about what this is. Just make sure the barn doesn't become reflective of assuming that the wedding itself is whatever you want it to be. Whether a barn or a sanctuary, you're standing on holy ground. You're submitting to a God-ordained institution. That is, if you are entering into holy matrimony and not simply marriage. Hmm. And, and let's, let me, let me, let me, I mean, let's make sure that we're understanding because this, this is a focused conversation, but it's a very broad conversation. There's two radically different worldviews operating right now in our culture. Uh, and this is very important to understand, and particularly as it applies to something like marriage. Um, the first can be called the, um, the, the creation model. And, and this assumes that the, the universe is created with an objective moral order that exists and that the two sexes are part of that order. And that marriage is the fundamental social institution by which we unite our lives in family and kinship relationships. This model is virtually universal in all traditional societies throughout all of the history of civilization. That's one view. What is taking over our culture, though, is what might be called the choice model or has been called the choice model. That this, this assumes that individuals create their own truths, create their own values. Sexuality has no intrinsic purpose. It's just for pleasure. It's just for intimacy. So therefore, of course, just do whatever you want for pleasure. You know, that's when you rip it from the confines. Uh, family structure is as pliable as Plato. Any form is acceptable. There is no defined sense of family. So not only is marriage optional, but the right to marry is nothing more than the right to participate in state-defined benefits. So going with a choice model is saying there is no higher truth than what we come up with, and that marriage is no more than a human invention. It's ours to change. It's ours to redefine, even to discard. Um, and that's why in many ways, you know, when Christians like fight against gay marriage, I mean, as, a, as something in our culture, in our society, in, in one sense, it's like, well, what they're talking about has nothing to do with Christians. It has nothing to do with holy matrimony. It's not what we're talking about at all. And in our culture, in our society, with its ethic, civil unions between uh, two men or two women in many ways makes perfect sense. Polygamous relationships, whatever you want. I mean, because you're not basing it on anything other than uh, something that's just about state-defined rights. But the Bible is a creation model. When you're talking about holy matrimony, that changes dramatically. Then who you marry and how you marry and, and what marriage is takes on great definition and enters into the world of right and wrong, true and false, transcendent and the holy. And the Bible is a creation model versus our world, which is a choice model. And that is why something like polyamory and the devaluation of marriage is becoming so prevalent and also why it has no place in the Christian life and Christians rightly um, critique it culturally and, and argue for a radically different vision. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what needs to happen. I mean, we're, we're, you know, again, and, and you asked this and I'll, I'll kind of end on this. Um, uh, what Christians tend to do is denounce and dismiss. And I get it, but 
we, we, we need to cast a vision for the alternative. We need to invite into something better, bigger, longer, more compelling and more winsome. And so if you just get up there all day long, this is bad, 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 bad. Well, uh, you know, one of the things about Jesus was he, he wasn't afraid to denounce things, but what he, what he tended to do was denounce religious hypocrisy. He didn't tend to just denounce the lifestyle of sinners. What he tended to do was denounce the religious leaders. But when it came to the, the sinners, if you will, it was more like, golly, I know you've had five husbands and you're working on a six, but can I talk to you about a much better drink of water? Mm-hmm. Can I just cast a different vision for you and, and, and how life can be? And, and that was what he tended to do was to vision cast um, uh, to them about a better way of living. And I think that's where Christians have failed and we haven't done a good job of and the church hasn't done a good job of. We condemn, but we don't convince. Uh, we denounce, but we don't describe. And so we, we, uh, and I just, I just, I always felt like when it came to these things, um, rather than just denounce all the sexual stuff that we feel like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is our world, but rather, Hey, let me just start off by saying, I agree with you. Sex is amazing. Such a God given, wonderful, beautiful, miraculous, incredible thing. So incredible that here's God's vision for its optimal engagement. Hmm. And to cast that vision and cast a vision for marriage and cast a vision for all of these kinds of things. And what I have found that if you do that biblically and right, people are not defensive and they're very drawn to it because because they are creatures with a conscience Mm -hmm. and they do feel a sense of, of, um, you know, I'm doing this. I know I shouldn't feel bad about it, but somehow I feel bad about it. No, 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 no. Maybe you should chase that thought about why you feel bad about it, why it's not satisfying. And 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 then, you know, offer them a something higher up and deeper in. Mm. I love how you put that. Because I was even thinking, I'm like, gosh, it's really depressing that we've had to have this conversation today. And yet, you know, based on what you just said, it's an incredible opportunity for the church to really invite our culture into something that is so much greater. And in fact, you you can spend a lot less time denouncing when you spend more time inviting and then people can do that. Yeah. I mean, that's what the Holy Spirit brings that kind of conviction upon each individual life that you don't have to. So um, yeah, I love that vision. Thank you, Jim, for, for ending on that note. And thank you guys for listening. We hope you catch us again next time.